When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good easy 15 metres, nearly at the 20. Still in the middle of the park now on last tackle. Lusset goes right to Johnson. Johnson looking for a little uh, up and under chip that goes to Watini Zizek. He bats it backwards, coming back to grab it was Jesse Arthurs. The young kid who dreamed of playing for the Warriors from his days for the East Coast Bays Barracudas has dotted down at Mount Smart for the Warriors' third try. 22-2 the final score. And after 1,038 days, they finally come home. And the man that's been... Well, basically, you've been their dad for those three years as their CEO, Cameron George. Cameron, thanks for joining us tonight. I, I hope you're comfortable because I did warn you I was going to be, this might be a bit of a long chat. <laughs> Always comfortable around you, mate. No, it's, great, uh, it's great to join you after a fantastic weekend of sport in New Zealand. Like, how, how great is it to have all of it back? Rugby union, uh, league at the highest level, uh, both last weekend and this weekend, mate. It's just fantastic to be home. On a personal note, how relieved are you to be home? Well, you, I mean, you, you guys are basically still based in Australia, right? Let's let's be blunt for the rest of the season. That's right. So we're still based at Redcliffe and we'll fly home for the home games. Um, the reason for that is last year when we had to uh, plan the 2022 mm. season, uh, that was in about June, July last year, we had to start looking at that because the borders were shut uh, there was no sign of them opening. And then um, we had to look for a base, so we looked for Redcliffe. And one of the things that we needed to do was ensure we had stability around the families and yeah. provided them with the opportunity to go to school all year and so on. Because some of the kids have been through four or five schools in the previous 18 months, and it just was you know, beyond fair. So that was the key. Uh, ultimately, the government come out and put their plan in place to say they're opening the borders in July, which they did earlier, and uh, here we are. But mm. uh, we'll be based in Redcliffe for the rest of the year, but be home to play our home games. What was it like, though, what, for you personally, to be back, sort of even wander back to your old office and, and the you know the East Sedan and just sit down and go, okay, uh, we're, we're almost normal. How how important was that for you, <laughs> as being the the leader of this organisation? Oh, it was extremely special uh, when I got home last week. To see some of the staff that I hadn't even met before in person, um, you know, we had to employ people recently to fulfil some roles, given we're coming home, and it's just great to reconnect with them and just to walk around the the office and to walk around the the gym that's ours and the, and all the other parts of the stadium that um, we haven't had to enjoy uh, for the last you know two and a half years, three years, and. You know, don't forget in Australia, uh, we we have been until Redcliffe working out of marquees, uh, working out of portacoms, um, not having offices, using units as offices, um, and the players and the staff having to set up gyms within within gyms that mm. you know segregate you away from the public as well, and you had to do that daily. So there's a lot of operational stuff that uh, we we're doing over there that to come home to a permanent base is just so much easier mm. and so much of a relief. Did you shed a tear at all last night at any point? Uh, I was, I was probably, I was a, mo- a bit more emotional on, on Tuesday uh, when we all reunited with the staff and players and had a beautiful ceremony mm. at the stadium. And um, then the sort of 
the excitement took over later in the week for me. And, mm. and you know, yesterday was, yeah, certainly emotional, but I was more excited for the fans. It was just, it was amazing, the atmosphere. and It was electric, the atmosphere. You couldn't help but just, you know, be excited about, this, you know, the scenario. And, uh, you know, I think as the night wear on, went on and we looked like winning the game, uh, that, that probably had a bit more time to reflect on the whole situation, how big the night was and the day was and the three years has been. Well, you'll have to indulge me because I do want to reflect and go back to the day and the moment you found out you couldn't come home. What what was the first thing when Andrew Abdo says to you, you know, mate, uh, you ain't going home. Uh, you're stuck. What was your first thought and how easier did the NRL make your job? I didn't even know what COVID was when I got a phone call. Uh, we were heading to the game at Newcastle. Uh, I was going early so I could watch the um, watch the New South Wales Cup team play and it was a, a wet, windy day. And I had a phone call from uh, one of the media in New Zealand asking me about COVID and has there been any discussions with government? And I said, uh, no, I'm not 100% sure what you're even referring to. So I hung up and... I actually did ring uh, the government agencies back here and asked. And they said, look, no, nothing's happening here. It's all, all sweet. This was about midday. Um, by 3 o'clock kickoff, I think, we, the NRL kicked off around 3 o'clock. I'd had four or five phone calls with uh, Todd Greenberg at the time and James Bowen Rudder about the New Zealand borders. Um, they were getting a, uh, a bit of noise that they were going to shut the next day. And by the time the game had finished, uh, it was full-blown. It was COVID was taking over uh, the world and uh, New Zealand were going to shut their borders and um, we had nowhere to go unless we went home that night. So it, it, it all became a really fast-moving uh, mess, to be fair. And I remember us getting back to the dressing room after the game and uh, I just sat down with the players and I explained to them what I knew, which, to be fair, wasn't a great deal other than there's a COVID pandemic and it means that we can't fly back to New Zealand unless we go tonight or first thing in the morning. However, what it does mean is that we can't play in the NRL anymore. We'll be in lockdown. So everyone was a little bit shocked. Uh, they were on the phones with their families because it was big news in New Zealand overnight. Uh, the NRL were, were basically pleading with us not to go home because if we did go home, they were unable to fulfill their obligations broadcasting-wise. And that would have a significant impact on the competition and probably cancel it. So which, we decided, which put you in a, it puts you in a good bargaining position, right? Well, it does, but you know, there's bargaining and then there's people. And when you have got to deal with people and their families, it doesn't matter what you're bargaining. Yeah. Nothing jeopardises or should risk the well-being and the welfare of you know the players and their families and the staff. Mm-hmm. So we um, we. We had a big chat as a group, and I left it with the playing group. I said, your call. We'll back you either way. Um, and, look, they all decided to push on um, and stay indefinite. Uh, we had no training gear. And when I say no training gear, uh, no no pads, no equipment, no nothing, uh, no footballs. Uh, it was only game day stuff. Uh, we had no clothes and so on. So um, everyone chipped in and, you know, our sponsors and local football clubs gave us their jumpers and everything when uh, when they went to you know, we went to Kingscliff. Um, however, I flew back the next day with Peter Hiku and Patrick Herbert, the first flight and the only flight we could get, 
because those guys couldn't stay because they were they were expecting you know to have babies in the next couple of weeks, so they couldn't take that risk where the rest of the guys stayed. Um, and as you'll recall, we played Canberra the following week um, at the Gold Coast, and then the competition was closed, and we had to get special permission to come home at that point straight into lockdown. But then the whole new world started to happen again once uh, Peter Melandis opened up the competition at the end of May again. And uh, we then had to try and get back in it and get back into Australia. And that was when a lot of hard work and a lot of discussion took place for the next two or three weeks. How, how quickly one forgets Todd Greenberg. And here I was thinking Andrew grabbed over. Todd Greenberg was the, was, the C, was the CEO at the time. So a lot of decisions had to be made. And Andrew Abdo said this past weekend that the sacrifice that the Warriors made to keep the competition alive uh, probably will never be repeated again. Those weren't his exact words. I'm adding that in. Uh, but from a commercial perspective, did the NRL make it easier for you as a club, as a professional organisation, to be based in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. Like The enticement for us to go there was to continue to earn an income for the individuals, their families, and um, so they picked, the club. They, picked, they picked up the tab. Is that what we're saying, simply? Well, they pay the salary cap anyway, but in yeah. terms of the club, they paid all the accommodation and so forth in that initial period yep. while we are in Australia. Because don't forget, when we went to Australia, uh, we were in a bubble, we were in lockdown in Tamworth and so on. Um, but there was a lot, a lot of water to go under the bridge mm. before we got to Australia. Um, and that was one part of it is we are not moving families or are not moving players and staff until we get what we want. And that was, you know, that was things like, Steve, that was, you know, things like babysitting assistance. Uh, that was, um, don't forget the fathers were leaving families behind at that point. So the mothers were working and, you know, they had nowhere to put their children and so on. So there was all sorts of little things that we take for granted every day of the week by being around uh, that you do, that when you're not here, um, you know, it becomes a challenge. So there was all of that stuff that we had to weigh up um, when the boys left their families behind and that was that was pretty tough negotiating but it was something we weren't going to move on and um, I think at the end of the day that's probably where Todd and the commission parted ways because um, you know, we just couldn't find middle ground and we couldn't get answers quick enough and there was a lot of stress with our players and their families. So are you, and, suggesting, um, are you suggesting Todd was not in favour of you staying on board and the NRL picking up that tab and the commission was? No, no, not at all. I was just saying that's about the time Todd and the NRL parted okay. ways when we, were, when we were discussing and negotiating all of that. Mm -hmm. So then we had to direct our whole discussions and negotiation towards Andrew Abdo, and that's where he picks up the bat. And he was he was absolutely fantastic. He, he got straight up to speed and he, um, you know, he just stepped in with a, a really fresh amount of energy um, and we utilise that to our advantage and we got a lot of stuff done pretty quickly uh, but then the decision had to come um, are we prepared to go? Yes we are. Are we prepared to go on these conditions? Yes we are and that was the first step and then the second step was okay how do we get to Australia because the international borders were shut and not only did we have to try and get permission to go to Australia we then had to get individual state permission to go into each state so, um, you know, it was a, a cluster? It was just an ongoing challenge. 
It must have looked like that. Hey, just hold on because I want to. I want to talk to you about, and it's just even listening to you, I can sense the the emotional toll it took on not just you but everyone. Stay there. <laughs> Thanks, Johnny. It's 2.31 here on SNZ on the run home with Stephen McIver, Kieran and Niv. And we're reliving an interview I did uh, some time ago. It was the the week after the Warriors came home and we sort of went down a, a big hole and a good hole too with CEO Cameron George about the pressures and the emotional stresses that it was living away from home for a number of years. And I asked him how many of the players told him they were struggling and, and, and how regular was that conversation? Yeah, look, there's a lot of challenges, um, you know, through that initial period. Uh, and the, the biggest challenge come about when we agreed to go to Australia. Um, the families weren't allowed to go at the initial stage where the players left to go to Tamworth uh, because the Australian government would only allow the players themselves to come. Mm. And we were promised that the families would come later about a month after the players left. Mm. So the players left on that proviso and um, that was very clear to us and it was very clear to the players and that was exactly the condition that the players left their families behind on. And then about three or four weeks later, uh, word come through that the the players' families, if they weren't Australian citizens or residents, uh, they couldn't go to Australia because of the border situation. So that then made us you know, work through one of the biggest and the saddest days that I've had in the job where I had to sit down with the players and said, your families can't come for those that aren't eligible to travel into Australia on these conditions. So it was really tough because that's when the players felt let down. They felt that the NRL um, and everybody had promised them though the conditions were coming over to play in the competition on. And when the families couldn't join them, um, you know, it was very sad. It was very difficult and it was really challenging for us all to work through. And as you recall, we had a number of players come back because that was a condition that uh, they went to Australia on. Um, So from that point on, you know, it was really important that we wrapped good welfare support and wellbeing support around the players. And it's been constant up until now. And it hasn't been easy for the players or the staff. You know, you can't forget about the staff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're in the background doing all the work as well. And uh, they've suffered just as much as the players. And uh, that's something that I just never want to live through again. And um, it was really difficult to manage that whole experience because of the borders and they were completely out of our control we just had no control over that did you feel like you let the players down do you feel like you let the staff down that that was partially your fault because you couldn't get what you had said was going to happen 100 percent. i felt sick to the stomach mate I, i i was devastated because it was made clear we will go but the families come and they joined the players when they got to Terrigal after spending a month in Tamworth on the 28th of May when the uh, competition resumed. And when that failed because of the government restrictions, I felt useless because I couldn't, you know, ask the Australian government to change their mind. Well, I asked, but they just wouldn't change their mind. And I just felt so bad because... I'd been a part of the whole negotiations with the players and the leadership group, and this was one key condition, if not the main condition, and it was taken out of our control, and I just was left standing there having to then tell the players that their families couldn't join them, and it was devastating. And 
that's one part that I'll ever always look back on with great regret that um, we weren't able to get the families there and then. Did you did you you know go to the NRL and say, hey, this is this is what was supposed to be going on? Uh, it hasn't delivered. Did are you going to fight for us, or, or did they say, sorry, our hands are tied because of the government decision? Pretty well. Um, and look, I, I've got to say that they did fight for us, but you know you're dealing with the federal government and the global pandemic, yeah, and yeah. Um, you know, it's just we were one drop in the ocean compared to all of the requests they were getting and we were just getting nowhere with it. So I remember the day clearly talking to the players, they were devastated um, and basically saying to the players, well, on that basis, if you want to come home, you come home because I'm not going to let you down anymore on the basis that yep, so you I, couldn't have your families I, there. So I'd like, I'd like to question you on that, OK? I think who came home? Kenny Momolo came home, did he not? Um, who else came yep. home? Um, I can't David Pusatua. Yeah, right. Okay, so two two key strike weapons and a good forward, right? So I want to, if you had had, if you had had it differently, if would you have done anything different? Would you say, guys, we understand what's going on, but everybody else is staying. We should stick together. Would you have? Considered that at all if you had it over again? Because I thought I'll be blunt with you. I and and what you're telling me I haven't heard before, but I thought at the time it was a soft option to let them come home because I thought it sent the wrong message about team, about sticking no, together no. in in a crisis. No, I'd probably go the other way. Okay, I most likely would have said we're not leaving the shores of New Zealand until the families are accepted to go into Australia. It was devastating uh, to separate kids, their fathers, their wives, their partners, um, on the basis that I was told that we would have that condition granted. Um, and then not the fault of the NRL, it was just the government came down harder in that period of time in terms of access to Australia. So mm, okay. I was not going to stand in the way of any individual who's a human and a father uh, that wanted to be home with their family because we're dealing with a global pandemic here. No one yeah. knew where it was going to finish. No one knew when it was going to finish. And no one knew how to handle it, to be fair, because there's no, you know, you can't <laughs> pick up a manual and read you know, chapter <laughs> five and go, this is how you handle, uh, you know, border restrictions and a global pandemic. Um, so it was quite scary, but... I felt that was the best way forward for those guys. And, um, you know, it was a decision that I feel very comfortable with because they had the support of their teammates and so on. Uh, and yep. everyone had the choice. And some chose to stay and some chose to come home. And it was it was going to be what it was going to be. But it was a difficult time, uh, no yeah. doubt. And, and something that I look back on and think was probably one of the saddest parts of the whole process. How did you reconcile that that day? What was when you walked away and said, "Okay, this is what it's in." What did you do? Can you remember the moment you just walked? Did you walk away and go, "Oh man, I don't"? I mean, what was what was going on in your head, man? Oh well, I felt I let the players down and their families, and and the part that I could start to bridge it back together was giving them that option to come home, and and those that chose to come home, they come home, and you know, to our open arms, you know, we come home, we we had a catch up at the club, and. You know, it was sad, it was tough, but, um, yeah, I, I felt, I just felt that was probably my lowest point. And then from that point on, we just had to navigate through it. Um, 
and, and try and get the players as settled as we best could, get the best support around them. And the other thing is, when you're, when you're talking about the situation in Australia that they're living in, um, they're in apartments in a facility they couldn't leave. Um, so you, you weren't allowed to leave the facility. So these guys were 24-7 living together, training together. We only had, we only had access to four minibuses. Uh, they could only travel in those minibuses to and from the training facility. They could only travel to and from the, the gym that we had to set up every day away from the public and pull it down every afternoon after training. And we had to wipe everything down and clean the gym out and so on. And then they'd be straight back home. Um, so they weren't, they weren't out and about um, doing their, their normal thing mm. that they would be if they weren't in lockdown. So it was a really, really strict and restrictive bubble that they lived in. So it wasn't fun. Absolutely not. Uh, they had a lot of spare time in their hands and they had no one but their teammates there. So it was um it wasn't like they were living in paradise. It was it was pretty tough. And I remember um, you know, in comparison to the other football clubs, and this was the key difference and this is why, you know, it was quite tough for us to get through, was that every other NRL club, their players lived at home, so they had a bit more freedom. They were able to travel to training on their own. They were able to go home to their families. They were able to um, you know, take their kids for a walk and go to the park and so on because they wanted the people to the, the other players at the other clubs they wanted to maintain a family lifestyle um, and I remember one of the conditions that was pretty clear when I looked at the protocols was they you know were allowed to go and take their their, their dogs for a walk so one of the things that you know Dan Floyd and a few of the <laughs> other boys and, and and I come up with was that we we didn't have the children there, so they couldn't go to the parks and so on. But we rang the local dog pound, where they obviously <laughs> hold all the, the dogs that don't have a home. And um, we said, if you bring a heap of dogs around, you know, every second afternoon, um, <laughs> the boys will take a dog each and and go walking across the road into the parks. All of a sudden, we had the the Central Coast dog pound turning up with all these uh, all these dogs uh, with leads on and. The boys would just walk out, grab whichever dog they wanted to, and uh, become a mate with that dog, and take them for a walk for a couple of hours. Oh, that was the only way we could get that in that stage. That was the only way we could get them out of the bubble was to go go walking <laughs> with the dog. So um, it was a creative way, but it was a it was a legit way that we could get the boys out for a bit of fresh air and a bit of. Time. But 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 so healthy because dogs aren't judgmental, right? I'm a dog owner, and that would have been and would have been such a different experience for for guys that probably weren't dog people. Mm. Yeah, and, and there was guys that you know had dogs in New Zealand, like Jazz and those boys who were missing their dogs, and all of a sudden they were able to become friendly with you know with the local dogs in the <laughs> pound, and and I think uh, I think there was some good friendships struck up, you oh. know, struck up there. And, they they had a lot of joy there, um, doing that creative way of uh, of getting out uh, using the protocols to to the extent we had to to try and get them some fresh air and get them out and about. Before before we wrap up this part of the conversation, I, I haven't asked you this, but who did you lean on? Because you, you you're saying everybody else is doing the good job, but you're the one having to de- deliver the bad news to them at this point. And we know it gets better and we know that you're back, let's say you're back home. So before we get onto a different part of this conversation, who did Cameron George lean on? Robbo, Mark Robinson. He was fantastic. You know, he was so supportive. He was um, he was just, let's just get on and do what we have to do. Uh, but, you know, 
the leadership group were outstanding, Stephen. They they were, you know, Blake Green, Torhu Harris, Rodney Tuivasa, Sheck. Um, you know, those guys were just. Adam Blair was another one. They were just outstanding, and um, they worked really closely with me, and I really included them in a lot of the journey um, and discussions and decision making and communication was key and um, we did work through it together and on a personal note you know I just just come home from work and you just kept going 24 7 I just had to because that was the only solution was to keep going and and to navigate the club through it um, you know was was made easier because of that support um, and did we get it right all the time I don't think we did but we had a bloody good shot at trying to navigate through something we've never experienced before. Okay, so I, I, want, to, I want to take another wee break because I want to navigate something that I'm really hot on. I've never called you out on it because I have a different view to you, and I'm sure you're going to put me in my place, but I want to talk about Roger Tuivasa Sheik. So stay there, Cameron, have another drink, and I'll be back with you shortly. Say 10 to 3, 10 to 3 on a Monday, Motown Monday. We'll have more Motown music after 3 o'clock with Stephen McIver, Niv and Kieran, of course, uh, guiding you home this Monday afternoon towards Christmas of 2022. And this is the final part of my interview I did with uh, CEO of the One New Zealand Warriors, Cameron George, after they'd just come home. And I, I wanted to call him out because to this day I still disagree with the fact that they let Roger Tuivasa go. And I said to him, I just don't see any world where this should have happened. Yeah, look, everyone's going to have a different opinion on this, and, and, and you will as well. But um, look, uh, in, in simple terms, Roger earned that from from us. Now, why I say that is because when Roger made that request that he wanted to, you know, uh, play rugby union, he did so on the basis that he wanted to be based back in New Zealand with his family, and obviously uh, he didn't want to stay away from his family for another year or two. And let's not forget, when the request was made, we had no idea how long we are going to be away for. Mm-hmm. So Roger uh, has been one of the leaders through this whole sacrifice. He has sacrificed more than any, and he has given day in, day out to our footy club. Um, when he sat down with me and discussed it, I could sense how much it meant to him to be home. Yes, he wanted to go and play the other code. I, I understand that. And I felt that all I was doing was tearing him apart from his family, that he couldn't be back here with them. Can I stop you? Can I, can, but can so. I stop you there just for a moment? But he's just yeah. one player. Every all those players were sacrificing. They were all away from their families. So why was he more special? Why not? Well, I've let other players go to mm. be with their families too. It's not. It wasn't just isolated to Roger. Hmm. Roger, at the time when the other players left to come home to be with their families, he continued on with the challenge. He continued to lead the club through the darkest times through the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. He never, ever once wavered from that obligation, but it wore him down. He's a terrific human, a family man, and a great athlete. And I'd love to still have Roger at the club, but he wanted to go off on a different journey for his own personal reasons. Mm-hmm. And I believe, personally, when we sat down and talked about it, he'd earned that right to have that discussion and asked us to consider it. Now, he did it respectfully. He did it for his own personal reasons, and we agreed. And uh, and at the end of the day, he wasn't leaving the club any earlier than just a year earlier. However, that changed when things changed again last year with the border restrictions. Bearing in mind, he was one of the ones that his family couldn't come over. Uh, and he and, and you know he'd been through that devastating experience, 
And then last year, uh, in the middle of 2021, when we got rushed up to the Gold Coast and put in a jail-like scenario <laughs> in different hubs, when the New Zealand Prime Minister come out and said, if you're not home in a week, these borders are shut. Now, I'm telling New Zealanders, if you want to get back, you get back now. Otherwise, I don't know when you'll be back. Now, if it didn't go then, and listen now, Mal, if they didn't go then, they wouldn't have got back until June this year. And that was not fair. And I was never going to stand in that way. And I'll tell you one thing I learned through that devastating experience that I told you was the saddest time yeah. of my life. I will never use sport to separate families. That is the most difficult thing to do. And I expect the players to fulfil their obligations. But when it gets to the point of no return, when they've been away for so long and separated for so long, you've got to treat them as humans. And that's exactly the way Roger deserved to be treated. One news, one news, one <laughs> One New Zealand, I can't get to this, the One New Zealand Warriors CEO, Cameron George. Uh, probably the most, the last part of the interview I ever had with him, but it was, I will never use sport to separate families. And that, that has stuck with me since that interview. We'll wrap up the sound. Look forward to between three and four. In just a moment on SNZ.